Interface is a leading provider and local manufacturer of flooring solutions and global leader in, in sustainability. They've recently achieved a carbon negative milestone, launching the world's first carbon negative carpet tile. Interface has been leading the way by reducing the carbon footprint of their products and manufacturing processes for more than two decades because only by working together with designers, engineers and scientists can we make the changes required to reverse global warming. Okay, welcome to Talking Architecture and Design. My name is Brian Camelotic and today we have with us all the way from the UK, Oliver Heath. Oliver Heath is the founder of Oliver Heath Design, an architectural and interior design practice specialising in health and well-being, and are global experts in biophilic design. Oliver Heath is also a television presenter on the BBC, ITV, Channel 4 and the National Geographic Channel for over 20 years. He is the, the author of four books on sustainability and interior design, and most recently a book called Designing a Healthy Home. And he is the biophilic design ambassador for Interface, as well as being the author of Positive Space of Positive Spaces Guides. Oliver has presented seminars and workshops for Interface to leading architects across the UK, Europe, and Middle East for the past seven years. So welcome to Talking Architecture and Design, Oliver Heath. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here with you. And thank you for getting up so 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 awfully early in, in, in over in the northern hemisphere. Um, I'll, I'll try and I'll try and not not ask too many hard questions this early in the morning. For you, anyway. Actually, it's not too bad, isn't it? <laughs> it's um, fine. Okay, good. So, tell me about. I mean, I've gone to your website, which is really interesting. But tell me about your journey to space. How does one? become an expert in this field? Yeah, well, I originally trained as an architect. So I studied architecture at uh, UCL, the Bartlett in London. And um, when I came out of that, I sort of decided I wasn't ever going to maybe be a traditional architect. Um, I was on a little bit of a mission. I ended up uh, living in warehouses in East London and started working in television back in the late 1990s. And uh, at that point, there wasn't really very much conversation around sustainability, particularly in the home, going on at that point. So I made it my mission to talk about the things that we should be doing in our homes to reduce our home's impact on the environment, to cut carbon emissions, to cut our energy and use and resource use. And that sort of led me on a mission. And I just sort of you know, thought, well, if I'm going to do anything and be on TV, you know, make it count, make it worthwhile. Um, and then after some time, I realized that people were not that engaged with the idea of sustainability. Uh, but basically, people were saying, you know, I don't really care that much about the Arctic. I don't really care about the wider environment. You know, I just want my home to be nice and beautiful and pretty. And what happened was I sort of changed my conversation away from the carbon-centered conversation about, you know, cut your use of resources, cut your use of water. It was all a bit naggy. Uh, and, and took a more human-centered approach that actually looked at health and well-being in the home. And actually, the messages we were putting across were, were, were about actions to do exactly the same thing, to lead uh, a healthier life by living in a warmer environment with less drafts um, and basically cut your emissions, but take a more health-centered approach. So it was at this point that I discovered the work of the likes of Eric from. Edward O. Wilson and Stephen Keller, who were the godfathers of biophilic design. And this was just like a revelation, understanding that humans had an innate connection and attraction to nature, and that there were ways of bringing that back into the built environment. So around this time, I also 
met uh, Interface and realized that they were on a very similar journey to me, albeit a far greater, more global scale, and Interface, the global uh, carpet manufacturers. Um, they were already undertaking a very sustainable mission, and they were interested in human-centered design and biophilic design. And I met with them, and we realized there was an opportunity there for thought leadership to come to the fore. And so we started working together. I was presenting seminars and workshops to architects and interior designers, and then uh, sort of going out. And we realized there was an opportunity to further that and to write some white papers. So we started writing and researching and creating these documents that were free to download to architects and interior designers. Um, and that involved a lot of research, a lot of writing, a lot of putting together ideas and kind of enhancing and pushing that message about what human-centered design and biophilic design was and could be in the built environment. And alongside that, I was running my design company uh, and also putting these theoretical ideas into practice in the many projects that we were undertaking. So it's been quite a journey and Interface has been sort of an integral part of allowing us to develop that thought leadership. You talk about human-centered design, okay. Um, how would you actually define it for simpletons like myself? Um, you know, is, is, is it is, is this is there a part of this that's about a cognitive and sensitive well-being, or, or what is? Ex I mean, is this just a term, okay, that that, that people use, like like an, like you know, let's say an industry term um, for architects, or is it is it an actual proper um, discipline with you know with with, with a sort of an academic underpinning? Well, I'd agree with the latter part of that. Um, so basically, human-centered design is that that puts human needs at the forefront of the thinking of how we create our built environment and the products that we interact with all the time. And fundamentally, our approach takes uh, one that looks at human health and well-being. And when we talk about that, it's both physical, mental, and emotional well-being, and how we design to support those human attributes through the spaces that people occupy. Now, if you consider over the last 20 years, we've taken a very carbon-centered approach to sustainability, looking at the embedded carbon of products and materials, looking at the in-use uh, uh, element of carbon and how we use buildings and the impact they have. A lot of that really sort of looks at the impact a building has on the environment. But what we do with human-centered design is look at the impact that building has on human beings and how that impact actually allows you to deliver on the intended function of the space to allow people to operate and to deliver that intended function without a detriment to their physical, mental and emotional states. So our approach um, essentially takes uh, uh, this idea of a connection to nature as being a sort of fundamental key aspect. So we use this approach called biophilic design and biophilia quite literally means a love of nature. Uh, and it's this term that was developed that when we, we recognized that actually connection to healthy, flourishing forms of nature was fundamental to human survival throughout evolution. So essentially, this is an evolutionary design approach that looks back at the way we've evolved in nature and tries to find ways of reconnecting contemporary urban dwelling human beings who live in noisy urban geometric spaces and reconnect them with nature to elicit a similar emotional response to that that we find when we're in nature. Because when we're in nature, we often feel calm and relaxed and less stressed. And we have good conversations with people. We feel more rested and we feel generally happier and healthier. 
And that's quite different to the way we find ourselves in many cities. So this human-centered approach using biophilic design seeks to reconnect people with nature, to make them feel less stressed, to aid recuperation, to reconnect them with a sense of space and place, and also the people in them, to form stronger, richer communities that put people in a better state of mind, and essentially to deliver on the intended function of the space to minimize negative costs, things like sort of absenteeism and staff turnover, but also to improve positive outcomes. Okay, so how do you how do you do this across different segments? So you know you've got you've got residential, you've got you know um, commercial or even retail, okay, or hospitality. I guess that's commercial. <clears throat> you've also got things like aged care, for example, and that's a growing segment as you as you're well aware. Um, you, you've got you know other sort of things. How do you how do you design for? I mean for other, other, what I'm trying to ask is, are there certain principles that are pro, that apply, that are apply across all sectors? Well, essentially, you know, this this sort of desire to be reconnected with nature is what we would call a universal design ethos. Right. Essentially, everybody has at some point in their life had a positive experience of being in nature, and what we're looking to do is to bring back that that sort of memory of being in nature and to elicit a similar physical, mental and emotional response within that space. So we're not literally going to recreate your holiday, but we're going to be little cues and, and kind of triggers to create that sense of calm and relaxation. So as you've mentioned, you know, of course, we've got all these different sort of building typologies. And what's interesting about biophilic design is that it, it is an evidence-based approach. So it uses research that's been developed by environmental psychologists over the last 20 to 30 years that demonstrated again and again that different aspects of nature can have a positive outcome on the way people function in buildings. So we often take this evidence and we look at these research studies and we say, well, look, here's evidence to suggest that if we put people, say, closer to a, a window, they'll get more natural light. They'll have a better view out. And if we can position plants out there with a little bit of movement, then people will feel more rested and more recuperated more quickly. The increase in natural light will rebalance their circadian rhythm. So they'll sleep better at night and wake up feeling more refreshed. And as a result of that, you know, this study has shown that, that there have been increases in productivity by between 6 and 15%. So we use this evidence. And there's multiple research studies really across all different building typologies that we can draw on. And then we bring that forward to say, okay, well, here's the evidence. Let's take this approach and, and see how we can interweave it through the sort of three-dimensionality of what they're suggesting here to position people closer to elements of nature to have richer, deeper, more meaningful experiences. And what is fascinating is, you know, we have education from the world of, uh, we have research from the world of education, where, uh, you know, uh, essentially when uh, students study in natural light, it can increase the speed of learning, it can reduce absenteeism, and it can uh, improve test scores. In the world of healthcare, um, when patients recuperate in beds overlooking trees and greenery, it can reduce their uh, post-operative um, recuperation rates by nearly 10%, they actually feel less pain and as a result need 22% less medication. Wow. 
you know, in the workplace, uh, you know, positioning people with better views and elements of nature can improve productivity by between 6 and 15%, uh, increase creativity and a sense of engagement. And again and again, through every building typology, we have this research that demonstrates that an enhanced connection to nature can reduce negative elements and improve positive outcomes. And for me, this is really important, is using this, this kind of research that we've gathered and that we've written down into these reports that we've written and say, look, here's the evidence. Why aren't we working and using this? It says something, doesn't it, that human beings as a species have taken themselves or has taken themselves out of nature and now we have to put ourselves back into nature to actually feel ourselves again or good about ourselves again. Doesn't, it, it, says, it says a lot, doesn't it? It is. It's kind of enormously arrogant, really, of human beings to think of themselves at the top of the triangle, to say, you know, it's human beings and we're responsible for everything else. Whatever we do, we're just masters of the universe. And what's much more important is that we see ourselves very much more as a sort of internet, within an interconnected web of the kind of uh, ecological systems. And that we, un we need to understand that our cities are, you know, for all intents and purposes, you know, not so dissimilar to an enormous termite mound. You know, we, 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 the, these spaces will affect us, but also have an effect on the environment around us. Uh, but we've become so large and so populous that we're having a wider effect on the natural environment, the environment that actually supports our health and well-being. So I think there is a, a really important environmental message here that we have to recognize that our health and well-being is intrinsically connected to the health and well-being of the natural environment around us. So in a way, it's a stepping stone to, to kind of help people understand that, you know, nature is good for us. And if we look after it, it will look after us. So, you know, it kind of leads us to a greater sort of desire and appreciation of the natural environment and a desire to conserve and look after it. Mm, okay. Um, on your website, it says, and I'll just read out, uh, well, one of your statements says, our vision is to enhance nature can nature connections to support physical and mental well-being across all aspects of the built environment, from cities to neighbourhoods, streets to buildings, entire interiors to the furniture we connect with every day. That is, I mean, excuse the pun, that is, that's the entire sort of human ecosystem, isn't it, of, of where we exist, you know. Um, that's a really huge task you, you've set for yourselves. Um, you know, that's massive. Where do you start? Yeah, oh, well, you've got to you've got to think big, haven't you? <laughs> no point limiting yourself from the outset. Well, to be honest, you know, where do you start? I mean, does this sort of desire to be reconnected with nature start with a, you know, a plant on your desk or on your balcony or doing a little bit of gardening, you know, in your back garden, or or does it start with you know trees in your street or a local park? We use this idea of the nature diet triangle to approach our projects, to think about how we as human beings can connect with nature across varying timeframes and scales of places. So in the Nature Diet Triangle, it sort of recognizes that human beings need to have a connection to nature to reduce stress, to aid recuperation, to form better, more deeply connected places and spaces. So within this triangle, it looks across sort of different timeframes of the year. So every year we might take a really deep nature immersion when we go on holiday and spend a couple of weeks outside in the beaches, the mountains and the forest, but we can't perpetuate that all the time. So we also need to think about how we connect with nature 
across the seasons, across the months, the weeks, and every day. And equally, we need to think about it in the built environment. Um, you know, we should think about it nationally of how we connect with our uh, sense of nature, well, internationally and nationally, but also across our cities, our towns, our neighborhoods, our streets, our buildings. And also, how do we bring that nature connection inside into the spaces that are so important in our daily lives? And we spend 90% of our lives indoors, probably more if it's raining like it is in Australia right now. But um, uh, that aside, essentially, you know, what we're saying is, this connection to nature is important and we need it. We need to drip feed it into our lives and essentially try and understand what is a healthy portion of nature and how do we then sort of look after that nature connection across all those different scales of times and spaces. is brought to you by Interface, a global flooring company specialising in carbon-neutral tile and resilient flooring, including luxury vinyl tile and Nora rubber flooring. Interface helps their customers create high-performance interior spaces that support well-being, productivity and creativity, as well as sustainability of the planet. Their mission, Climate Takeback, invites you to join interface as they commit to operating in a way that is restorative to the planet and creates a climate fit for life. And now back to our podcast. Is all this um, certifiable? Is it measurable? I mean, what I'm asking is, are the results here of what you do, um, is it, you know, can you graph it, basically? You know, is it the, you know, you know the, the, depending on what, on, on what um on, on on who I talk to the person is either a doctor or he's a priest so either either they can see the results of their work or they can only only imagine um is, so which is it can you is any of was all is certifiable and, and able to be um presented in let's say a report yes absolutely and I think this is one of the most fascinating aspects about biophilic design and human-centered design is that, that it is certifiable, that we can measure it. But it is interesting, isn't it? Because ordinarily, we don't tend to measure the success of the designs that we are doing for our clients. You know, if you think about all the different design styles that have happened through history, you know, whether it's the kind of Gothic or classicism or uh, modernism, We've never said, well, let's measure how successful this is. We've just sort of slavishly done it because a religious leader or design guru has said, this is the approach. This is reflecting humanity right now and or technology. We should be doing this. But now I think increasingly our clients are asking us to demonstrate, in effect, a return on investment and to demonstrate that actually the approach that we take with human-centered design can deliver tangible and valuable results. And I think this is really important because as a design community, we can now start to demonstrate the real value of what we do, not just by making buildings that look pretty or that reflect an organization's identity, but that demonstrate that actually the choices that we make in the kind of spatial orientation and the circulation of spaces and the materials and the colors and the textures, our relationship with nature can actually deliver tangible financial benefits. Now, this is something that has been picked up by certain building standards like the well building standard, living building standard, uh, and fit well. And these are human centered design standards that help organizations um, 
support human health and well-being in the building. So these studies, uh, these, these standards are all based on evidence that have been built up, as, as I said, for many, many years. And I think this evidence is really important to initially pique people's interest, you know, to, to understand that actually adding elements of nature or views can increase productivity by six to 15 percent is really, you know, interesting to a client who wants to, you know, have some tangible value from the design they pay for. But all that evidence happened at another time for another client, maybe in another country, maybe another decade. And I think what's really important is that we as a design community start to measure the value of our design through what we call pre and post occupancy evaluations. And it's something that we all know of and we know we should be doing, we just haven't quite managed to work it into our scope of works and to engage with our clients. But I think it's really important that we do try and understand essentially what the baseline is before we go into a project, try and understand really what the problem is, and then use that to measure the successes of the designs that we then implement it. And this is real-time evidence for your clients to measure the, the value and the successes of the projects, but also to uncover you know, potential flaws that need fixing. Now, within this, what we should be doing is kind of looking at both quantitative and qualitative feedback. So the quantitative stuff is like measuring things, measuring things in general, you know, it's like natural light or the acoustics or the temperature or the humidity of a space. But we should also be looking at the qualitative feedback and saying, well, how does this space make you feel? How do you feel like you've been productive, engaged? Are you able to communicate well with people? Do you get easily distracted? When you leave the office, how do you feel? Do you sleep well at night? Because buildings have an enormous impact on our, on our well-being, and we should be trying to capture that and valuing that feedback um, so that if it's wrong, you'll know and you can fix it and you can make it better. And essentially what we want to be doing is, you know, carrying out these pre and post occupancy evaluations to be making the people who occupy buildings an essential part of the design process and the spaces that we create so that they, they sort of feel valued, they feel engaged, and that they feel the building is there to support them in their physical, mental, and emotional needs. And so these pre and post occupancy um, studies, I think, are really, really important. And that's sort of fundamental to how we might actually measure and certify a building's true success. It's, it's interesting you say that. So with biofuel design, there's one thing that I've noticed is that it has a dual effect, doesn't it? It's not only for the, it's not only good for the people inside the building, it's also good for the people, well, okay, okay it's good for the people outside the building too, but the building, the building doesn't look nicer, obviously. But there's the issue of using less power, of using, you know, of, of, of less carbon emissions. Um, so that's kind of, dare I say, win-win approach. Um, is, that how, is that how you think the industry looks at it? I think the industry at the moment right now looks at biophilic design as simply, you know, how do we add more plants and greenery to a building? But it's much more than that. You know, it, it, it has so many opportunities for both people and planet. You know, there are two approaches to biophilic design. One is what we call a neuroscientific approach. And it looks at that sort of individual benefit of a nature connection to a person. And we all know individually that when we spend time in nature, it can make us feel calm, more relaxed. It can reduce heart rates and blood pressure levels. 
it can just de-stress us and recuperate us, make us feel better and happier, more energized. It can improve our cognitive performances. So that's one approach is that it, you know, it, it benefits the individual. But it also, there's a, a second approach, which is what we call more uh, socio-psychological, which essentially suggests that when elements of nature are better, uh, are there, people feel better, they feel more relaxed, they feel more open uh, and optimistic and positive, and as a result, have a more positive experience of the spaces and the places, but also the interactions with the people in that space. And so biophilic design has a potential to enhance a sense of community within uh, the built environment and to kind of connect people more deeply. And I think this is really, really important because we need to get people to come together, to connect them, to get them to talk, to share ideas if we're going to meet the many challenges that we're facing with the climate ahead. So there are these two sort of human-centered approaches. And as we discussed earlier on, there is this sort of stepping stone towards biophilic design being a kind of key element in terms of people adopting more sustainable ways of being. But once they recognize the value that nature brings to them individually and as a community and as to a business, they're going to be more likely and inclined to take further steps to support the wider environment. And increasingly, what we're doing is we're looking at this, this sort of area of, of how do we design for both people and planet? What are the things that kind of cross over? You know, so a good example is, you know, when we add plants and greenery into our cities, that greenery can help to reduce the urban heat island effect. It can um, remove toxins from the air. When we have trees and plants, it can prevent flooding, something that's obviously happening right now in yeah. Australia, because, you know, you create these kind of sponge spaces. Um, it attracts biodiversity that can pollinate uh, our food, um, you know, and we also get to, to kind of have lovely shady spots to enjoy within our cities. So actually, you can see at that point, that bringing nature into our cities and around our buildings and neighborhoods has benefits for both the immediate environment, but also creates sort of happier and healthier places for people to enjoy. So there's a couple of examples that you've worked on um, in, in the UK. Um, can you tell us a bit about them? Yeah, so um, over the last sort of 10 years, we've done some really interesting projects with Interface. Um, you can find them on our website as well. So basically, one really interesting one was uh, a school for autistic children in London called the Hackney Garden School. Uh, and essentially what we were asked to do is to create a recuperation room for autistic children that sat alongside a playground. What the teachers were telling us was that the children in the playground were becoming overwhelmed and distressed by the, the amount of noise and activity in the playground. They were hypersensitive hyper to all that noise. And they wanted somewhere where the children could come and just stop and relax, maybe see that activity, but not be overwhelmed by it. So we created a space where the children could come in that had biophilic design features in, but actually because of the level of autism, we weren't allowed to put any plants in the space at all. So we use basic principles that mimic elements of nature using natural colors, materials, shapes, forms, and textures and patterns uh, that mimic and create a feeling of nature without actually bringing real you know, forms of nature in. So what was interesting was uh, essentially we created three different areas. Uh, one area was a, a series of sort of little niches that the children could tuck themselves into. And we carpeted these with interfaces, uh, net effect carpet tiles, and that changed the acoustics and it gave the children a point of refuge. So they could sit in this little niche and look out 
towards the playground, but it changed the acoustics and they just suddenly felt safe. It was like a little womb-like space. Then opposite that, next to the windows that overlooked the playground, we had these uh, window seats that just allowed the children to sit, to bathe in the sunlight and to look out onto the playground, to have what we call a sense of prospect. Now this allowed the children to see the activity, but without being overwhelmed by the noise and the hustle and bustle. And then the third aspect of the space was an interactive, what we call cause and effect space, where the children could uh, kind of interact with these little touch pads. And when they pressed a touch pad that was covered in a leaf or pebbles or grass, um, noises came out that were reminiscent of that. So you'd hear the sounds of a forest or water or the beach. Um, and you'd hear that. Uh, and so you get this kind of cause and effect and lights would change and noises would come out. So what we were trying to do is create this kind of multi-sensory space that offered the children a number of different ways of interacting um, with the place and the space to see what was going on, but essentially give them this kind of space to stop, recharge and recuperate and to uh, basically get back to being at their best. And it was really amazing. When the children came in, they immediately went into these, climbed into these little hexagonal niches and just sort of sat there and created this, there was a, this incredible sense of calm just happened as they were kind of suddenly in their own space that sounded different. It was, uh, it's really wonderful. And there's a, there's a lovely little film on our website that demonstrates the, the effect of that. And it's called the Hackney Garden School. Mm. Okay, there's, there's uh, another place, there, the Building Research Establishment in London? Yes. So the BRE, the Building Research Establishment, is uh, basically um, an organization just outside London. They're the founders of the BRIAM building standards. So they're kind of leaders in sustainability. And they were really interested in uh, human-centered design and, and how that could be incorporated into BRIAM. So we were asked to go into the, the BRE and to look at how we could transform a typical office space from a conventional space, it was a, a, a 1980s concrete frame building, and just start to insert biophilic design in a number of different ways from a sort of low cost approach to a high cost approach. Uh, now, what was interesting about the study was that we carried out one of these pre-occupancy uh, evaluations. And when the results came through, what was interesting was that essentially the building measured in a way that it sort of suggested it was okay. You know, the lighting levels were adequate, the acoustics were kind of okay, the the kind of temperature was all right, it was ventilated. But when you ask people how they felt in the building, it was starkly different, very, very different. And that actually people were saying, you know, I don't like this space, it feels unloved, it's tired, it's old, I, I get stressed, I, you know, I can't speak to people, I don't see anyone. When I leave, I'm pleased and I don't want to bring anyone into this building. Okay. So what is interesting is that you can measure a building. If all you're looking at the, the measurable bits, it can measure okay. But until you ask people and ask them how they feel in it, then you're not getting the whole picture. So we then use that evidence to sort of investigate how uh, we could integrate elements of nature into the space and, and kind of create a, a biophilic workspace. And so we've recently completed a, a small part of that project and it's called the BRE uh, Foundation Space. And in it, we, we worked with a series of core partners like Interface who supplied the flooring. There were paint companies and planting companies, um, furniture companies, acoustics companies, all of whom um, invested knowledge and products um, to help us create this biophilic space. So that was a really interesting project where we looked at that pre and post occupancy evaluation. So it's a bit like well-being meets meets um, 
wellness meets productivity meets sustainability meets meets uh, you know uh, uh, an, a, an, a, an increase on the bottom line yeah exactly yeah i mean we, we're sort of essentially looking at how we can create spaces that as i as i said before you know um deliver on the intended function of the space but reduces negative costs and so i think we need to kind of work much harder as designers to really investigate that and to to try and measure it and to find those you know tangible benefits for our clients and you know, this is something that I think that we've been investigating through our work with Interface over the years. So, you know, we've been lucky enough to work with them to sort of create sort of knowledge and research and thought leadership around this area. And it was great to eventually, you know, realize this in a, in a live project like the ones at the BRE. This is a really big and varied subject, isn't it? Where can we go to get more info? Yeah, I mean, there's an enormous amount of research. Uh, and so we've been writing these white papers over the last few years with Interface as our knowledge partners to kind of further the discussion and find out how people can harness the benefits of biophilic design in different ways, whether it's just about how you bring it into the, the office or the workplace to realize that neuro um, um, sort of significant approach of benefiting individuals, but also how you can harness the benefits of biophilic design to improve that sense of community in buildings. Um, so we've written these white papers and um, they can be found and downloaded to free. So basically to download the reports, what you've got to do is to head to the Interface Australia webpage and in the search bar, enter human spaces reports. And in that you'll see a series of different reports that you can download for free and read. They'll, they'll take about an hour, but they're really packed with sort of knowledge, with research studies, with statistics, with case studies. We've tried to write them, just make them really accessible. And uh, actually the newest one we've just released, which is really fascinating, is how to design for cognitive and sensory well-being. And this is a really interesting subject because it starts to recognize the need to, for us as designers to design for neurodiversity and recognize that essentially we all have different sensory thresholds. So it starts to sort of tackle that area of, of what happens when you have very diverse communities that are either hypersensitive or hyposensitive and how do you design spaces that supports their physical, mental and emotional needs. So it's a, you know, stepping into new territories and helping us as designers to engage with these subject matters that are going on out there. In a, in a relevant, accessible, and I believe valuable way for our clients. That'd be uh, www.interface.com where we can get those, um, those white papers, I believe. Oliver Heath, founder of Oliver Heath Design. Thank you very much. That was actually brilliant, very informative. Um, I didn't realize there was so much, so much to um, um, what you do. No, no offense to <laughs> no, I mean, it's absolutely fascinating area because for, for most people, it's just about bringing more plants in. And then you start to delve into it and go like, actually, there's research that shows and then that you can approach it in all these different ways and realize all these benefits. And it's not just about, you know, bringing a plant, putting it on your desk. It's about it's about the way we design our buildings and our neighborhoods, our cities and our whole approach to the way we live on the planet. And, you know, so so it is this kind of enormous subject that just has so much potential. It's, it's not only fantastic, it, it sounds absolutely logical. Um, thank you very much for your time, Oliver. It's been an absolute pleasure, Branko. Branko, thank you. You've been listening to Talking Architecture and Design. Until next time, goodbye. This podcast was brought to you in association with Interface, proud sponsors of the sustainability series of podcasts. For more information on Interface, 
go to www.interface.com. Thank you for listening to Talking Architecture and Design and today's guest, Oliver Heath, all the way from the UK from Oliver Heath Design. You've been listening to Talking Architecture and Design, part of the Architecture and Design Network, which includes Architecture and Design Online, the Architecture and Design Newsletter and Architecture and Design Print Magazine. For more information, go to www.architectureanddesign.com.au.